a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I'm Jenny Taylor. And today we are joined by Jeff and Rosemary Masters out of Oklahoma. Good morning, everyone. How are you? We're doing great. Thank you. Oh, this is I'm so... sorry. My grandson just walked out. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. That's okay. That's okay. We're happy to have you. We've got Jeff and Rosemary Masters. Now you're coming to us from Oklahoma and I know you've got a rooster in the background. So if anyone hears that, we just want you to know this is authentic. We are really live recording from their home into our home here along the Wasatch Front. Can you take a few minutes, Jeff and Rosemary, and introduce yourselves to us? I know we'll be talking a lot about the hope that you have found through the loss of your son through addiction, the work that you're doing helping other people with addiction and recovery and hopefully helping people find that hope. But could you back up and just give us a little background about the two of you, your son, your family? It sounds like you got the grandkids. Just let us get to know you a little bit. Absolutely. Jeff and I met in the Marine Corps actually in 1988. We were both two privates in the same unit stationed at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. We got married in 1989. So we had just celebrated 33 years uh, this June. Oh my uh, goodness. Congratulations to you. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. So my husband was actually stationed in Oklahoma in 1995, replacing a sergeant in the bombing. So we moved to Oklahoma that year, and I joined the Oklahoma Army National Guard. My contract with the Marine Corps has been up, so my husband finished a tour here, and he joined the Oklahoma Army National Guard as well, so we were both active duty. And I just recently completed uh, 32 years in the military and retired in December of 2020 as a CW-5, a chief. My last assignment was the Deputy Director of Personnel, G-1. And, you know, we had a wonderful life uh, with two beautiful children, Jeremy and Brittany. Jeremy was our oldest child. They were both born in North Carolina where we were stationed at Camp Lejeune at the Naval Hospital there. And I'll let Jeff jump in and talk about his career and his life. Well, I mean, it's like Rosemary said, uh, we were both in the Marine Corps. We met in the Marine Corps. I do want to clear up just that uh, she said I replaced a sergeant in the bombing, which I did. But I just wanted everybody to know that he survived. He was alive when I replaced him. He, oh, that's you know, great news. <laughs> so, <laughs> that is great news. Uh, and the bombing she's talking about is the Oklahoma City uh, Federal Building. Yeah, no, but, how um, crazy to think that you guys were there and, and then serving in that yeah, area after. Yeah, so I had my orders to come here in January of 95, and we got here in July. Of course, it was blown up in April. Yeah. So fortunately, we missed that. But I remember it was kind of a haunting, weird feeling 
you know, because we always kept saying, golly, would we have used that daycare? Because, you know, somebody sure. have you died in that could daycare. Have, could have very easily. Absolutely. But anyway, so, yeah, so we were here. I got out of the Marine Corps, and she had already joined the National Guard. So uh, the very next day, she talked me into doing it. And uh, I joined the National Guard with her back in uh, March of 99, finished out my career with the National Guard, uh, active duty. So I retired from the military. That's a great career between the two of you. Tell us about your family. You've been married 30 years. We know you at least have the one son. Um, tell us more about the kids and grandkids you now have. You know, well, our son, Jeremy, uh, passed away at 28 years old in October 18th of 2019. We have our daughter and son-in-law. She's now 29 years old. And I have two beautiful grandchildren, Mia and Aiden Corson. I'm so fortunate that we have family to love especially now that we're both retired from the military and, you know, I'm able to spend more time with my family. It's just wonderful having those grandkids here now to, to enjoy life with. My daughter and my son, basically we raised them here in Oklahoma. We've lived here since 1995 and they were very young when we moved here and was stationed here. And uh, we had honestly a wonderful life. Jeremy and Brittany both did lots of sports. Uh, Jeremy excelled in track. He did football, basketball, track. They both did Taekwondo. He got up to purple belt. Um, My daughter was very good at gymnastics. They wanted her to formally compete, and she did for a couple years. I mean, so we were very active, both of us being active duty, but we were very active in our church, our community, and in sports. Everybody referred to Jeff and I as Ken and Barbie. You know, they, they just always told us we had the perfect life. That picture-perfect family. Yes, yes. You know, and uh, we thought we were normal, but, you know, we were always surprised when people looked up to us and said, you know, you have this wonderful marriage and this wonderful, well-behaved children. And so I think later realizing that the, the last eight years of my son's life, really, his, his young adult life was very hard and very difficult and very stressful for our family Watching someone you love so much struggle with addiction and ultimately prematurely die from it is mm-hmm. horrific. My heart goes out to any family that has to endure that kind of pain. And I think there are more and more resources today, but I will tell you, it was very hard for us to find them at first. Yeah. To help you walk through as parents how to navigate getting help for a loved one and and help for yourself in the stress right. that it puts not just for the not just for the person with the addiction. The entire family is affected. I, Rosemary, my heart goes out to you. I'm so sorry for your loss and for the struggles for those eight years. I have two brothers who have struggled quite a bit with addiction for on and off now for 30 years, and I've felt what you have described the weight that it puts on the entire family. I remember yeah. when one of my brothers uh, got divorced over a decade ago, and and just the weight that 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 was so difficult on all of us and, and his struggles and going through suicidal periods and, and worries mm-hmm. where we thought the phone was going to ring and it was going to be horrible, awful news any minute now. Can you tell us now, obviously Jeremy's not here to tell his own story. Can you help us understand maybe where he got onto that path of addiction, especially coming from this background? I think many of us think, 
you know, here you are, you've got mom and dad, you're happily married, you've got a son, you've got a daughter, you're active in sports in the community. Surely you won't ever have a child that gets involved military in Military family, yeah, discipline. Yeah, military, sure. Right. And right. again, not speaking for Jeremy, but can you tell us his story and what you know of where he maybe got onto that path that led to such a, to such a sad, sad ending? Absolutely. And it was hard for us in grief groups and as well as in our Hope is Alive group that help parents set boundaries and get their loved ones help through rehab programs and different counseling programs. But through counseling, we realized that Jeremy was actually diagnosed with an anxiety and depression uh, disorder, which in the beginning, you know, you, you start seeing signs that you think are just teenage or young adult issues that, oh, they're finding themselves and or he took that breakup with his girlfriend really, really hard. He's such a kind-hearted, loving person that uh, this affects him more greatly than it would the next guy, you know, because he was such a one-woman man that he was more sensitive than other young men were about love. And so when you can't identify a certain trauma that triggered the addiction, you know, we were looking for answers on, well, how did this start? And how did one thing lead to another? And I think my husband said it really well once when he said, you know, in the beginning, we thought it was a moral issue that he made. Mm. He had a character defect that he had made a mistake and morally chose a life of addiction and substance abuse, which now we know was not the case. We now understand that for some people, chemically, they need a lot of assistance to remove that substance from their body and to stay clean and sober. And so it took us years. I think we were in denial at first that there was an issue. And then when we saw the signs, again, we thought it was a moral issue that just make good choices. Yeah. Don't do these things. Just you know, stop and it. There yeah. were consequences. Right. And bless his heart, having two military parents, you know, just do it now, move was our mentality, you know, get it right. So through counseling uh, that we attended with him, we were educated in the science. We went to counseling with doctors. We attended some free programs that the state offered on educating people about addiction and what it does to the brain, how it hijacks the brain, and uh, hierarchy of needs, and then just tools for how to cope and set boundaries and lead your loved one to help. And thank goodness, Jeremy had periods of sobriety And he desperately wanted to be sober and live a full life. More than anything, he wanted to be married and have children. And unfortunately, he was not lucky in love. And he had three serious girlfriends. And each breakup was like a death to him that it would send him spiraling out of control, you know. And so, Jeremy, we pushed him to programs. And then after the first rehab We said, okay, now it's on you. You know, you've got to do what you need to do to take care of yourself. And Jeremy was pursuing, he went to four rehabs his final year of life. He was so open and honest with us and so raw. And he was like, mom, I've got to go back in. I'm not ready. I thought I was ready, but I I get triggered and seeing my friends and my girlfriend, I'm still in love with her and she's moved on and it's very hard for me. I've got to go back in. I'm not ready. And so we really thought we were so hopeful. We saw him gain a lot of healthy weight. He was talking uh, to us about his future. 
and the hopes he had. And so we really thought he was going to make it. We were very encouraged that last year. So many people that we talked to have this, I think, preconceived notion of what an addict's life is. And for our son, that wasn't it. He didn't live in the alleys. He was in a sober home or he was in rehab or he was in our home, but he was seriously working on his recovery. And he was a good person and he loved going to church, even up until the week he died. He loved going to church and he loved worshiping. He desperately wanted a family of his own and for us to be proud of him and So again, his death was a shock to us because we really thought if anyone's fighting for their life, it's our son, Jeremy. Oh my goodness, Rosemary, that is heartbreaking to hear of the journey and the roller coaster, but how beautiful to hear. I mean, I can hear the hope in your voice. He's fighting, he's going to the rehab, you're going to the counselors, you're you're finding joy in, in worship and in God and this higher power. And it seems like Things are going to work out and there's optimism and hope. We're going to take a quick break and come right back and have us or have you tell us what happens next, because clearly that last year of his life, though it sounded very optimistic and hopeful, ended up being the last year of his life. We'll be right back. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rosemary and Jeff, can you walk us through what happened? You said even up to that last week, he's in church, you're you're all working together, he's fighting so hard, he's looking forward to things, which is usually a good sign, that ability to hope and think ahead. What happened? He was in a, a sober living house, and he had had another relapse. And uh, in order to get back into that house, he had to go to a detox center for a week. So he checked himself into a detox center. But when he got out, he had told us he was realizing he needed something more, and he wanted to uh, get a long-term recovery plan going. He had met somebody in one of these previous rehabs that was telling him, hey, you ought to go to this one, and it was a six-month treatment. He was going to go out of state to California. And I remember I was a little nervous about that because I thought that was a long way from Oklahoma. I didn't mind going somewhere, but I was like, wow, that's going to be hard to like, we want to go visit you or whatever. Sure. But, um, probably about two days before he uh, died, we were in my truck and he and I were having some really deep conversations and, you know, I was telling him how much I loved him. And and at times I was apologizing to him. I said, look, you know, just like you're finding yourself, I'm kind of doing this a little bit myself too, because, I don't have the plan on how to deal with this sometimes. And sometimes I let my emotions get in the way and, but I love you and I want the best for you and all that. And, um, this guy from that center happened to call while we were in the truck and he, uh, 
started talking to Jeremy, and then Jeremy got all excited and was real positive, and I, I, I just saw him change and light up, and, and I just saw him excited about doing this, and the guy was, like, really encouraging and everything. And uh, anyways, he got a phone, and I said, you know what? I said, uh, I, I've changed my mind about this whole thing about worrying about California. I go, this sounds like the place you need to be because, you know, you and him talking together, it sounds like a very positive thing, and he motivates you. I, I think this is where you need to go. And so we had kind of settled in on that. And um, uh, in the meantime, he needed a place to stay till he was leaving. We bought him a plane ticket for the following Tuesday. I think this was a Wednesday. And um, so let's see, this is Wednesday. This would be the 16th of October, 2019. And um, I remember that week that Jeff and I both felt very encouraged because he was so articulate and so positive that he said, mom, I've got to leave these friends and my ex-girlfriend fiance behind. I need to leave the state and put some distance between us. And as much as, you know, we were like, we will travel to see you. That's okay. We want you to be well. Yeah. Maybe have um, a fresh start. Oh, absolutely. And as hard as it was for us to, you know, let him go, he looks so healthy. Like I said, he gained so much weight and we knew he was thinking clearly and he was really fighting and so honest when he made a mistake that he was resolved to be better and heal. And so we were encouraging him. We said, okay, you can't live here, but you can stay here until you fly out and, you know, go to your treatment and we will come and visit you. And, and the counselor that we kept calling and and getting in touch really answered all of our questions. And so we knew we only had a few days with him. And I remember us staying up late one night and Jeremy and I sat in in the living room and wrote out his goals and what he saw for his future. And really it was such a blessing to have that night with him now looking back because that day when we got home from work, Jeff and I, his girlfriend was there. She had come by his ex-girlfriend and that was always a trigger for Jeremy, you know, because he still cared very deeply about her and she uh, was sober and she had cleaned herself up and she had moved on in her life and she cared very deeply for Jeremy and wanted to see him do well, but it wasn't what Jeremy wanted. He wanted them to have a future. He even invited her to California with him. And so I knew when she left that night, that might be the last night he sees her And it would be hard for him. And so he was doing his laundry. He had his suitcase open, everything very neat. He was so helpful around the house. He was cleaning our kitchen, taking out our trash, you know, which was really sweet. And Jeff and I had went ahead. We're tired. You know, we went to bed. And then Jeff, you can pick it up from there because you're the one that found him. Yeah. Well, so, and and we got to back up a little bit. Honestly, um, when I came home from work, I could tell Jeremy had relapsed again. I could tell he had used. And so I was kind of, I'll be honest, I was kind of upset with him that night. And um, uh, the next morning, we were supposed to go out of town. We were going to visit my brother-in-law. We were meeting him in Arkansas. And uh, Jeremy was supposed to go with us. We were going to take our RV and everything. And and so I was kind of upset because I was like, really, tonight you're going to do this? And you know, we're going to see family tomorrow. And so I was being a little short with him here and there. And, but, uh, later on, I decided 
I, I was tired and I started trying I think I was falling asleep or something. And he was just sort of being a little loud. He was, you know, not on purpose, but he was doing things. He was, he was kind of packing a little bit for, to leave. And, uh, he was doing his laundry when he's kind of slamming the door a little bit here and there, uh, just kind of being unaware of how loud it was being. And, uh, I remember I got it one time and I kind of got on. But I was like, "Hey, you know, keep it down." I don't know. I was I probably didn't say it quite like that, but anyways. Then sometime later on, Rosemary had gone to sleep, and uh, I remember waking up. Oh goodness! Um, I think this time when I woke up, it was about midnight, and um, I got up. I saw a light in the bathroom, and and I heard him talking. You know, and I could tell he's on the phone. He was talking to somebody about his girlfriend. He's talking kind of about going, leaving and going to rehab and all that. And uh, so I, I chose to go around. I thought, okay, he's talking this out. Somehow I'm going to just go back to sleep and let it go from there, you know. Because I can't remember. I think he might have been a little loud and may have woke me up again, but I'm not sure. But I just, like I said, I just let it go because it sounded like he was talking about something positive and, and talking it out with somebody. Then it was probably another couple hours later I woke up I want to say it was about 10 till 2 in the morning and um, this time it was very different I remember getting up and everything was eerily quiet really like beyond quiet it seemed and uh, I had a hat going around checking him just uh, you know because we've been dealing with this for a while and I don't know how many times I've gone up and sometimes he'd be asleep and I'd check to see if he was alive breathing you know because he'd seemed like he breathed so still. So I had that kind of feeling again, like, like I need to check to see if, I guess to see if he was alive, honestly. And, uh, so I went to the bathroom, the light was on. And I remember, I think I, I knocked on the door, said, Jeremy, nobody answered. And, uh, you know, there's no sound, nothing. And I think I knocked again, he didn't answer. And then uh, I just opened the door and, uh, I remember walking in and uh, seeing him slumped over almost in an unnatural position in the bathtub. Like he was bent over, looked almost more than he should be able to physically do. And i pretty sure I started yelling, yelling his name, like, to wake up or something. I don't, I don't know if I said wake up or whatever. I just kept yelling his name. And I know I, at that point I had woke Rosemary up, obviously, because I was being real loud. I'm, I, uh, I'm a loud person anyways, but Rosemary, do you want to kind of Yeah, take I mean, where you... yeah, he was screaming, Jeremy, Jeremy, Jeremy. And I could tell, I always woke up when Jeff got out of the bed. He's just, you know, loud. And so I knew he was up, and when I heard him knocking on the door and immediately screaming his name, I went running down the hallway, and uh, he was holding his head in his hands, screaming into his face as to wake him up. And I knew, looking at him, he was, he, he was gone. He'd been gone for a little bit. He was gray. And there was very shallow water in there, and I had just had a surgery, so... I wasn't supposed to lift anything over 20 pounds. So I was, you know, of course, as a mom, that doesn't stop you. But sure. uh, I couldn't lift him out of the tub by myself. And so 
so I was like, Jeff, help me get him out the tub, you know, and he couldn't do it by himself. I mean, he's a man. You know, he's 28 years old and uh, healthy. And so it took both of us getting him out of the tub, and I immediately started CPR and, you know, told Jeff, call 911. And uh, so Jeff was on the phone with them, and I was doing CPR, and I realized he, you know, he had vomit in his mouth, and I was trying to clear the airway. And then the, the lady on the phone was very kind to us, and we literally have a, uh, a fire department at the back of our neighborhood. I swear it seemed like they were there in two seconds. I mean, like, fast. And from that moment on, my house was full of people. They grabbed him up so fast and drug him into our dining room area and began life-saving measures on him. And then the police arrived, and, and we gave him our name and, and what was going on, that we figured it was an overdose. Um, there was some things in the bathroom we were pointing to that, hey, we seem to smile. We were scared to touch anything, you know, and so – the paramedics in the fire department, you know, they were working on him and they syringes and just trying to breathe for him and all that. And it seemed like it went on a very long time. And I remember trying to stay out of the way and I, I would get close to go. Is he bre-? I thought that they had saved him at one point because all that pushing and pulling they did on him and, and putting that mask on him, some of his color came back and the, the CPR actually circulates blood and so he he had color come back so i thought they brought him back uh but they didn't they had not found a pulse and you know i asked the police officer i said have they you know is he okay he looks he looks better and he said you know ma'am it's my experience that the longer she's there on the ground that it's not good he says the minute they get a pulse they'll be on his way to a hospital and they can't move him yet because He's not able to. And so it started setting in. But I think, honestly, Jeff and I were in shock. There wasn't a lot of, you know, in the military, we're, we're trained to respond a certain way, you know, and there was not a lot of, I think we were in shock for many weeks, actually. And uh, then finally, they called it and said, you know, you need to follow us to the hospital, because they will declare whether he's deceased or not, but we cannot get a pulse. And uh, that's when we realized. And I think it's almost like an out-of-body experience at that moment. Like, this can't be happening. He was so close. And he fought so hard. You just think it can't be happening. Oh, Jeff uh, and Rosemary, I'm so sorry. This is so devastating. Yes. It's such a battle. You you love these kids so much and you want the world for them. Yes. And addiction is such a hard one. It is. Because it, it is. just seems like, just stop. But right. when you're not an yeah. addict and you can stop, you just yeah. can't relate to it. Well, I was telling Rosemary, we were talking about this the other day. After he had died, I started watching these YouTube shows about what it's like being addicted. And people were telling kind of their testimonies. And uh, this one really got me because this girl was given her testimony, but it started off talking about her brother. And she said, you know, this all started with my brother. He was an addict and he would use and use me and he wouldn't quit. We would get so mad at him. I'd be like, why can't you quit? And she said, she got so mad at him. She decided one night, she goes, I tell you what, I'm going to do this with you and I'm going to 
quit, and I'm going to show you you can do this, and then this will be done. And she was thinking she was going to prove a point. She said it ended up being the biggest mistake of her life because the moment she did that, it was like her brain said, this is what you've been missing all your life. And she has been an addict ever since that moment. And when I heard that, I was like, that is so crazy. I can't, I, you know, just, it just shows you what we don't understand, you know, how we tend to, again, judge it from a moral perspective, like, hey, all you got to do is just, people do, but it's, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. And uh, I don't know, something about uh, her saying that was very sobering, you know. I've noticed that you guys have not mentioned the drug of choice, and it doesn't really matter because it could be anything. And Oh, no, it's fine. He, well, he started with pills, uh, opioids at a party, and casual thing, and then it became whatever he could get his hands on. And mm-hmm. it, it uh, morphed into heroin. Heroin mm-hmm. is what killed him because it's very cheap. Um, yeah, yeah very we, had cheap. Learned, we had learned along the way that Pills are the gateway drugs to heroin, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I did not know that. Yeah. For a long, I, I knew it before he died. I learned that a few years before that. But I remember I was shocked. Uh, you always hear how marijuana is a gateway drug to other drugs. and But it's, it's definitely become painkillers are yeah, the gateway drug to heroin. Yeah, we have a terrible opioid epidemic in this country, especially where there's... We do. And, the, and like you said, unfortunately, that heroin is cheap and easy to find. And, and yes. you can yes. start with those pills, and those pills can get really pricey, but the heroin can be a cheaper hit. This it just makes me so heartbroken for you, for your family, for your daughter, for your grandkids, for just the entire community that I know knows and loves you. I mean, again, you're the Ken and Barbie couple, right? Let's take one more. Let's take one more break and and come back and talk about how and where you guys are finding healing. What the last couple of years have looked like since that loss and what maybe you've learned along your way about healing and about resilience that you might want to share with our listeners. We'll be right back. Jeff and Rosemary, this topic hits close to home for so many of us because even those of us who might not have lost someone to addiction have someone in our lives that struggles with addiction. I I think you'd have Mm -hmm. to look far and wide to find someone who's got no connection to it at all. It's becoming so prevalent in our society. Can you walk us through your grief journey and focusing on maybe where have you turned to for hope and healing? What have you found that has helped keep you going after such an absolutely devastating loss with your son? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, for both of us, it's different. We found different things help. I know Rosemary had a counselor, and that helped her. I went to counseling, and it literally did nothing for me. I, and, and not to say that counseling is bad. You know, everybody has to find their own way on this. But for me, I had trouble listening to someone that had not experienced this personally. And um, when we start getting with some of these other groups, kind of we tend to, I guess, say the the club that nobody wants to be a part of. I felt sort of a kinship 
with these other people because they knew exactly what we had gone through. And specifically, you know, I, I feel for anybody that loses a child anyways, because I understand that pain, but even more specifically for somebody that's lost through the addiction battle. You know, that was kind of where we had gotten, uh, we were already involved in Hope is Alive. And then, you know, a while later, they, they started doing this Hope After Loss thing, and that connected us with some other families that uh, had lost their kids to addiction. And so something about talking with them really helps. Obviously, it doesn't bring your son back, your child back, but there is something therapeutic about it. That and then uh, I've also found, you know, we've had people reach out to us that were struggling with their kids that were going through addiction and they didn't want to tell nobody but then they were like reaching out to us asking us i, I even had some asking me to talk to their kids and uh, you know I've, I've i've heard in the past that when you have a pain if you end up helping someone it's uh, very therapeutic because at that point you're not focusing on your own pain you're focusing on helping someone else through theirs and even from a church perspective, I've heard it said that um, when you've had a tragedy, you've been given a ministry. Oh, that's yeah. beautiful. That I love that yeah. expression. The ministry mm-hmm. of trying to help someone else, even if the only help you can provide someone else is that true empathy. Yeah, that true. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much the basis of this podcast. Brene yeah. Brown says, "One day you'll tell your story, and your story will help someone else. Someone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so and true." We had recently joined back into a, a Bible study group right before all this had happened. And that group, at the time that we were with them, had reached out and loved on us like unbelievable. They brought us meals. They, I mean, they were just there for us in so many different ways. It was just unreal. And uh, so, I mean, they provided a lot of comfort as well, you know, getting through some of this. Yeah. Um, well, our our church group, as well as our military family, I had a chaplain that deployed with me in Afghanistan, and he did the funeral. Not my pastor at my church, but a chaplain in the military did the funeral. Oh, that's um, beautiful. He had done several young men that had died to suicide or addiction. And so I thought, who is better equipped sure. to handle the death of my 28-year-old son, other than a chaplain who's been bearing, he lost soldiers in combat when we were in Afghanistan, and he lost soldiers that died to suicide when they came home from When they got back, yeah. Right, and so he was so well-equipped, and we just felt like he was God-sent to us, our military family showing up for us, and our funeral service yeah. was beautiful, and it was packed full of our church, our Bible study group, and our military family uh, showed up for us big. And, you know, Chaplain Jordan told us at that time, he says, I've never seen that many verbal roses given to anyone at a funeral where they get up and speak about their love for a person and who that, that person was to them. And we have a recording of that funeral, and it's it's beautiful to us to hear things we didn't know and how other people looked our son mm-hmm. Jeremy sure. uh, yeah. through that. But I can tell you, Jeff and, and I, this journey, we learned a lot about ourselves. We don't grieve the same. I don't know if you have this picture in your head that we've had this wonderful marriage and you think 
you're just going to grieve holding hands and you cry together and then you laugh together and you try to move on life together. And it doesn't work the way at all, at all. We grieve very differently. And counseling was awful for him, but it was life-saving to me. And I had a wonderful counselor that helped me in my journey. And we attended Grief Share through a local church that really helped me a lot as well. But like Jeff said, there were people there mourning the death of, you know, their 90-year-old mother and their father or grandparent. And we just couldn't identify with as well with people that, you know, prematurely lost a child, you know, in the, in the perfect order of things you expect to outlive your children. And so it felt so unnatural to us to bury our son. So we found that Hope is Alive Ministry, when they started out the Hope After Loss retreat, we went to that retreat. And that was huge for us because it immediately connected us with other adults that had lost adult children or teenagers to addiction. And watching these successful people that, like us, seem to have done everything right and still you know, addiction claimed a loved one in their family, it normalized our grief. You know, I I always told people listening, it changes you. We'll never be the same people we were before Jeremy's death. And I would listen to people talk about their children. And I truly believe many times people take a lot of credit for every good thing their child does. And then we also take credit for every bad thing that happens to our child or every bad choice our child makes. And I think neither, we should really do neither. Right, absolutely. I actually used to tell my children, I'm not taking credit for this great thing that you accomplished or whatever because it had nothing to do with me. me. It's you. Yeah. It's you. You get to take credit. That's very insightful of you. You know, I actually learned it from a lady in my church. She was what Mm -hmm. we call a visiting teacher, and she had said that to me, and I had young children at the time, and it struck me in such a profound way and I thought, I need to do that. And who would have known? Like, my first two kids how were pretty... How important you would need that. Yeah. Yeah, my first two kids were pretty easy, actually. But my second two have given me a little bit of a, a stumble. And mm-hmm. I've always kept that thought with me. And I th- I think it's true. I hear parents a lot of times say, my kid did this, or my kid's so successful, or my kid went to college. or And they take full credit. And if they have a house full of children that those things happen to... They think it's their stellar parenting, and I just smile. And on the inside, I know that's absolutely untrue. It's absolutely <laughs> right. untrue. You may Which be full the of pride side, we with your power and abilities. And right. We can't blame ourselves right. for the choices. Right, because we absolutely. have these children, but they're not actually ours. They're God's. They have yeah. their own mission. Mm-hmm. Their and their own, own personalities. And their own yeah. personality and, the, and their own experience in life here. Listen, you guys brought up something that I think is really profound, and... I love that you talked about how individual your grief is. Absolutely. You experienced a shared experience. You're both parents of Jeremy, but your loss and grief is very individual and that you had to find your own way through it. And I love that. And I think it's an important message to share with people. And then the other thing is that it's a process. So you didn't just go to your Bible study and find support there or and it's all done or you went to therapy and you either didn't get what you needed or you got what you needed or whatever. You kept on the process and it is a process. I'm four years out and I just realized, you know what I want? I want to go find a group of widowers 
that I can have conversations Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. that totally understand the process that I've been going through. Mm -hmm. I haven't had that. Mm -hmm. And I've decided four years out, like, I don't care that it's four years out. I still want to do that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so I I love that. Yeah. I love that you guys. That group of people can understand you in a way that no one else can. Right. Yeah. You know, some people have been like, oh, you're doing great, Michelle. It's so awesome to see you moving forward. And other people are like, you know, one day you're just going to not talk about John anymore. (laughs) And it's like, it doesn't really work that way, does it? It's like grief grief is a lifetime. And the reason people have their ideas or perspective of that is because they just don't know. They haven't lived it. And we have a lot of cultural ideas around what it should look like to make the rest of us feel comfortable about it. Well, and to to really kind of drive that point you're talking about. So interestingly enough, Rosemary had a brother that died at age 23. So we were kind of removed from her dad dealing with this. I mean, it was a different reason. It wasn't right, but he lost a child. And I remember trying to put myself in his shoes thinking, oh, my gosh, what must this be like? And then I remember, you know, a year or so later looking at him thinking, he seems all right. I think he moved on. Like, I really remember thinking that. And, of course, now he died before our son died. But when our son died, it was like it hit me like a ton of bricks. I had no clue what the heck I was thinking or whatever. You know, everything I thought was wrong. Mm-hmm. He dealt with that till the moment he died, I guarantee it. Yep. And he may not talk about there everybody because I think it gets, it's not so much for him, but people get awkward with it for whatever reason. And um, Because we're not talking people, about it. <laughs> Yes. yes, and even people that love you and are close to you, some of them truly don't know what to say. They try. And they just don't understand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they absolutely. Don't. And sometimes they, they think that their role is to cheer you up, and their mm-hmm. response will seem really odd to you. And I've learned, I just, you know, I, I have a lot of grace with a lot of people, yep. and uh, you just got to let it go because, and I yeah. just know that, Thank God they're not in this unusual club of ours of these grieving parents. And another thing I've learned is not all grief groups are good. I unknowingly was added to several grief groups, and several of them I had to get out of um, because they, they, they can be very moderators. Yeah, they can be really toxic, right? Yes, extremely. And there was no hope. There was nothing good coming out of it, and and it was too much for me to bear in that I found myself trying to minister to other people. And I thought, I need help. I can't be sucked into all these stories and all this grief. And uh, the moderator, I, I don't think did a very, there were some suicidal people on there. They needed help. They needed intense counseling and they were, they were not in a good place. And so I found that I needed more of a structured group with leadership. And so I checked myself out of some of those online groups and, and forums and said, no, I need, I need more structure and grief share. Like I said, see, Jeremy died right before the pandemic though. So when I called the VA and the active duty programs, a lot of them had shut down meetings. There was no grief counseling at all through the military other than my personal one-on-one that I was able to do telephonically with my counselor, all the other meetings had shut down. So Jeff and I really were, had some doors shut to us that normally would have been open, I think, had it not been the year 
2020 followed that, you know. Right. Um, no, what terrible, difficult timing. It was awful timing. It really yeah. was. And and then it was the year I was retiring. It was very well, and the, the year, year I, 30 years of marriage, I mean, so many milestones, each of those that brings emotion, whether the emotion is positive or negative, it's still emotion and change. And then the pandemic on top of all of that, I cannot even try and carry that weight of all of that and the isolation of everything that was required of all of us in 2020. That is just heartbreaking. Right. All right, Jeff right. and Rosemary, we have learned so much with you. I, I echo what Michelle said, how beautiful for each of you to acknowledge the uniqueness of a grief journey, even in a shared tragedy, even in a beautiful, loving marriage of two people who clearly you know how each other tick, and yet you grieve differently and how important it is to let that be okay and to find the grief and the healing that works for you and not feel like there's a one-size-fits-all approach. I love that you have found hope in helping others. That beautiful ministry you've mentioned several times, hopeisalive.net and Hope After Loss, to bring people together who have shared in unfortunately tragic similar experiences and can lift each other. Rosemary, I love what you mentioned that sometimes you're trying to give and serve and heal because you know it's good for you, but you might need to take a step back and just kind of replenish yourself because you might not have anything to give. And that's okay too. There's, you know, like the Bible says, mm-hmm. a time and a season. We can't be all things to all people at all times. Sometimes we might be the one that needs to be carried. And I love how many times you've mentioned your Bible family and your church family and your army and your Marine families and these people who have literally carried you and the people you have in turn carried. I think that is resilience. I think you guys exemplify that. And we just thank you so much for sharing this heartbreaking story with us. We'll be sure to share the links to those different groups that you've mentioned. For anyone listening, if you are struggling with addiction or if you love someone who is struggling with addiction, please let's reach out. Let's try to connect. Let's try to help each other find the resources. We know the resources are out there, but we know that even when reaching for those resources, the battle is so real and so hard. Please know that you're not alone. There are people who love and care for you, and we will try to put some resources in the show notes of places you can link if you or someone you love is in that desperate feeling and and struggle because it is just so awful and we are so sorry for what you've been through. So thank you, Jeff and Rosemary, for joining us. Thank you to all of our listeners for coming with us again on another journey of hope and healing and heartache and resilience all in the same 45 minutes. If you're listening and you have a story to share, we would love to hear it and share it with our listeners. You can contact us through email at rrpodcast at ksl.com or on social media at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. You can find us and like and rate us and review us on any of your favorite podcast formats. And we would love to just continue sharing these stories so that we can learn and grow together. Remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their lives. Have a great day. Take care, everybody. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.